<laughs> Merry Christmas. It is so good to see. I heard you singing out here, didn't I? <laughs> I could hear y'all back in my office. Uh, it is uh, so good to see all of you and to be able to celebrate um, Christmas together. We were just reminded um, what it would have been like to imagine, right? We, we, as growing up, we used to read the Christmas story uh, from the King James Version. And they, they were sore afraid, if you remember that, that version. And we think about this, we all try to imagine what this was like for the angels, what it was like for the announcement of this good news of great joy that shall be for all people. And in our, in our sort of Western, you know, childlike minds, which has a lot of beauty to it because we've inherited a lot of nostalgia and a lot of really special things at this time of year. That's why services like we have this evening are so cherished because all the chaos that it took to get your families here and all the chaos that's about to unfold when you get done with, from here and head into tomorrow, you know, these moments are, they're kind of precious. We can hold on to them. But what oftentimes gets overlooked is how volatile and how provocative what was happening in the first century was. When you imagine what it was like, most of us don't imagine it perhaps the way that it was. We've all heard the way the Gospel of Mark begins is the good news, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Well, this was a very uh, common way of, of a greeting or an acknowledgement. But what it was the acknowledgement of in the ancient Roman world is the acknowledgement of a military victory. And it would say something like this, the gospel of Caesar Augustus, right? Caesar is Lord. And it would be a, a gospel, a, a, a good news, an announcement of good news that would be followed by this conquest or this announcement of victory that would, that would say this thing has happened and now everything is different. That was the way it would have been heard and understood. So when the angels come and they announce, right, this is good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Right? It was a direct uh, sort of contradiction to this thing that people would have, to this, this way of life that people would have um, been accustomed to. Uh, some uh, enjoyed a living under Roman rule, uh, a lot of people did not. It was a lot of oppression and uh, corruption, all the things. And what you begin to see and understand about what this is ultimately about is what Jesus came to do when he came to save us from our sins, when he came to, this, he came to restore something bigger than what we often imagine. When, when you see that Jesus is revealed in Isaiah, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, but it says that the virgin shall conceive and shall give birth to a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And this was all pushing toward this day when Jesus, when God would show up in the flesh in the form of Jesus in a way that no one expected. And when he shows up, it says that the prophecy says that he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the government shall be on his shoulders. That's the next line. The government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, a mighty God, everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And of this kingdom, of his rule and reign, and of his greatness and the peace that comes with this, there shall be no end. This is how this was presented to us. This is the way we would sort of see and understand, what does this mean for us? Well, what, was, what Jesus was doing is he was restoring to us the dominion of one thing into another thing. And if you've been around Port Sea a long time, I talk about this idea of the rule of love. We were to live under a different governing system, the rule of love. And what you have to start to think about, there's, a, there's you know, and the great thing about this word is this offends nobody. Right? Everybody believes in love. I've talked to people um, who don't believe in God and they'll say, hey, Mike, you know, I don't, I don't believe in God. I'm like, fine, what do you believe in? Well, I believe in love. Everybody believes in love. And the question is, what is this and how do we sort of find this and what does this mean for us to live under a governance, under a rule of love? 
And in 1 John, that's where I want to turn our attention to tonight. 1 John's a little letter in the back of your Bibles. And John is writing and he says this, Beloved, let us love one another. Everybody nods their head and agrees with that. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he starts to, to press that in order for us to love, something has to happen in us. Because this, this idea, this thing that we would all say, love one another, for everyone who loves is born of God and knows God, has a relationship with God, is restored to this way of life. Whoever does not love does not know God because, and it says this very clearly, because God is love. <clears throat> so beloved, let us love one another. Then he says this. This is how we know that God showed his love for us, that he would send his son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love, not that we first loved God, but that God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice to save us from our sin. Now, this is, most everybody knows this, right? So what, is this, what does this mean? Well, there's a rule of love, and there's also another rule. There's something else that governs us. A lot of us, when we think about sin, you think about the list of things that you have done wrong, right? It's the lie you told. It's the, the way in which you cheated in you know, a, a game or with your family. Or maybe you said a bad word coming into the parking lot tonight because it was so crowded getting to here, right? Whatever it is, you, you have a list of things that you think you have done wrong that either you wish you hadn't have done or that offended God. And that's our list of sins. And that's a part of it. But I want you to understand is when, the, the, when, we, when this, this is revealed to us, sin long before it's a moral problem. God is not just trying to restore you to be a moral person. Long before it was a moral problem, sin is an authority problem. It's a governance. There's one way we were, we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness, is how Paul would write this in a letter to the Colossians. And we were transferred into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves, which is governed by love. And this, this, we gotta get this picture in our head because this announcement of good news of great joy right, is that Jesus is Lord. We have another ruler, another person whom claims our allegiance, another person who brings us to life for which we've been intended to live. This is all part of the gospel message, the good news, the great, uh, great good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. And so what sin does to us, it's not just your list of things, it actually distorts and clouds the way in which we see the world. Sin is the chasm that separated me from God and me from you and us from one another. Sin is the chasm that separates you from God and you from one another and you from us. All these things unfold. Most all of sort of the effects of, of the, the fallenness, the brokenness that we experience in the world are all due to sin. It clouds, it distorts, and it deceives us. It deceives us into seeing things differently. It deceives us into saying things. The lies, all the pursuits all are distorted and tainted by this view. And this has been my prayer for the last, I don't know, five or six, seven years. I've been trying to say, Lord, can you help me understand more and more about what your gospel means to me, this great good news of great joy. And what I've come to believe is that most of this has to do with us being able to see. We don't see this. And the reason is because some of us have had something happen to us that hurt us some kind of pain. And what happens is when this happens, we get inside of us and it frames the way in which we see the world. We look through the lens of what has hurt us. And the way that you can tell this is happening because when you look through the lens of what has hurt you, what you inevitably do is you arrange and resolve to protect yourself. You're gonna be very, very careful not to allow that to happen again. Others of you, something has happened to you or you have done something. And for whatever reason, you carry this sort of sense inside of you, this sense of shame. 
And so you know it's there and you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to acknowledge it, but it's, it's there. And what ends up happening is it frames your view of the world, the relationships that you have, the pursuits, all the things that you view and see are viewed for the, through the lens of shame. And you can tell this is your struggle because the pressure to conceal and to hide, to make sure that no one knows what's really happening. And so you project a lot of things about you in order to compensate for what you have, what's happening inside. All keeping us from the way we've been intended to live. Others of you have a list of things that you wish you hadn't have done or a list of things that you wish you hadn't have done that you did and didn't do or that you didn't do and wish you did. And so you live through the lens of regret. And you know this because as you're looking through it, what you find is this propensity, this, this tendency to try and prove yourself, to prove perhaps that you're not who you were, to prove perhaps that you're worthy of, of something better happening, trying to make up for what you have done. In some way, you're trying to pursue this and seeing the whole world through the lens of your regret. And the last one, I think this affects all of us <clears throat> quite naturally. And this perhaps is the most undermining of all, because we subtly learn as we live in this world long enough, you learn that you can't trust anyone but yourself. And so you end up looking at everyone and everything through the lens of distrust. All your relationships are tainted, all your pursuits are tainted. And what ends up happening is you demand that people prove themselves to you before you'll give them anything. We learn to live sort of hesitant and resistant and withholding. And all of these things undermine the way in which we've been created and called and invited to live, which is to live in love. So as I begin to think about this, you know, what struck me was what is it about this good news that brings great joy, that frees us from this? Many of you probably have resolved <clears throat> that you're not going to let yourself be affected by these things. I'm not gonna let my hurts affect me. I'm not gonna let my shame affect me. I'm not gonna let my regrets affect me. I'm not gonna allow distrust to affect me. But yet it still does, it still holds on. And even the way we pursue God, and part of the reason is because you are looking at love, you are looking at God through the lens of your hurt, or through the lens of your shame, and through the lens of regret, and through the lens of distrust. And it distorts even our view of Him which is why the gospel matters, why Jesus coming into the world matters, because this was the clearest representation of God's demonstration of his love for you and for me to return us and to restore us to the relationship and the way of life for which we've been created. So I wanna read this one more time. And this is what it says, because a lot of us are gonna go, we think that God is love, or like, that's cool, God is love. And so, we're gonna to try to conjure up some good feelings about God or some good feelings about the world and Christmas will serve that well, but that's not exactly what God had in mind when John would record it like this. And let's just read this again. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. This was the demonstration of God's love that he sent his son into the world <clears throat> that we might live through him. That all of life might be framed by the what we see through the lens of God's revealed love to us. He goes on and he says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know what that means? That means he has made a way for all the things that undermine and prevent you from living the life that you've been intended to live. He has put them to death. That's what the gospel is about, that you are now free to live under a different rule. I want you to imagine for just a moment, what if you really came to understand of God's grace for you and his love for you, the sacrifice 
and the forgiveness that he has made available to you. That the sins that you hold on to, he remembers no more. That the promises that you make to never do it again, he's already strengthened and made a way for you to find freedom in them, no matter how long you've struggled or how much uh, regret you hold. Right? He's made a way for these things to be done away with so that your past doesn't punish you for the rest of your life, but actually becomes a part of God's redemptive plan for the life he intends you to live. And you learned, learned, learned how to see your hurt through the lens of Jesus. That you learned how to see your shame through the lens of Jesus. A lot of us have learned how to see the shame through the lens of what we believe about ourselves or what someone, but to see it through the grace and the mercy and the love that God has for us in Jesus. This is how we know that he loves us, that God sent his son that we might live through him. What if we learn how to see our regrets through the lens of Jesus, through the redemptive lens of his grace, and that somehow, some way, this lens allowed us to begin to give of ourselves a little bit more fully and freely without holding on or withholding so desperately because someone might take advantage of us or people not, might not deserve to be trusted. What would it be like if we learned how to live like this? And here's the thing. People say, well, Mike, how do you do this? Well, there's three simple steps that you need to take and then your life will work perfectly. It is not true. There is no relationship on the planet that works like that. A relationship begins when you recognize that someone has offered something to you that seems genuine and real and you actually trust that enough to do anything about it, to do anything about it. And this is the same thing that I'm asking you. When I invite, a lot of you think that you, you're trying to get to Jesus and you're trying to make like a cerebral intellectual decision about all oh, do I have to believe this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And then do I have to deal with this or do I have to deal with this? Do I have to deal with this? And then, and what I'm telling you and what I'm convinced of that, that the, the power of the gospel is that if you can get to Jesus and trust him, he will frame everything else that you were dealing with. And when that happens, he has made a way for you to live your life through him. And out of that place, it begins to unfold and we begin to see things in ways that we've never seen them before. And so my simple ask of you, right, is to trust him, right? Whatever baggage, whatever thing you have, especially this time of year when people come back to church and this is like the Christmas and we're coming, you have reasons why you haven't been back to church. You have reasons perhaps why you struggle to believe in God. And maybe it's because it's you've been seeing him through a distorted lens. What I would invite you to do tonight is let him reveal himself to you. This is love. This is love. That God would send his son into the world to make sure that anything that distorted or undermined the life that you have been created to live would be demolished and would not stand in the way if you will trust him. What would it be like if you could learn to see your life and the world around you through the love for which you have been made, the love of God? How might that shift or change or contribute, right? One of my favorite quotes, C.S. Lewis said like this, I believe in Christianity in the same way I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I can see it, but because by it, I can see everything else. What if that became true for you? I would invite you 
to trust. My prayer, my prayer for us this Christmas is that God would reveal himself and open our eyes that we might see. And all the distorted views that we've held and that hold us would begin to dissipate in the clear view of the love that God demonstrated for us. Can we pray together? Father, I thank you that you have demonstrated your love to us in a very simple way. And your invitation is that we would trust and receive what you have done. It's a staggering thing for us to consider that our sins are forgiven. The things that we have done that have created a lot of consequences in our lives somehow have been erased. And that separation we experience with you is no more. But in Christ, we are new creatures. The old things are gone and everything has been made new. God, it's hard for us to understand. So rather than invite us to understand, you invite us to trust that you have done things that we can't understand. So I ask you, Father, to help us see. Would you reveal yourself to us? Would you draw us to yourself and help us to believe, to trust, that we might see our lives through the lens of your miraculous love for us. And I ask all these things in the name of your son who was born as Emmanuel, who died as a sacrifice, and who lives as our coming king under his rule. We pray all this in his name. Amen.